Hello, listeners, and welcome to Closing Time, the podcast that provides an inside look at the world of healthcare startups and venture capital. I'm Hallie Tecco. And I'm Michael Esquivel. Each episode, we get the privilege of meeting entrepreneurs at the forefront of healthcare innovation. You get to eavesdrop on pitches that are reshaping healthcare from founders daring to think differently. So pull up a chair and join us as we journey into the future of healthcare, one pitch at a time. Today, we are going to hear a Series A pitch from founder and CEO Neil Batsalivala of Pear Team. Pear Team cares for the highest need Medicaid recipients through a community-led virtual care model. Neil, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here and excited to get into it and tell you all what we're building at Pear Team. Yeah, well, let's start with the elevator pitch. Yeah, yeah. So um, what I like to say is this is Medicaid's regulatory moment. And what I mean by that is across the country, people have started to realize that social care, housing, food, transportation is a part of our care delivery system. And that is happening across states, waiver after waiver. And the challenge with all of this is that we have a very disconnected social care, shelters, food pantries, rehab facilities, and clinical care ecosystem, outpatient sites, hospitals, et cetera. About 80% of Medicaid patients have some social health need. And so what Pair Team does is we have a mission to connect underserved communities to high-quality care by partnering with community organizations, local neighborhood organizations, and bringing them into the care delivery system. So imagine partnering with a shelter, a food pantry, a rehab facility, and turning them into a site of care. How we do that is through upskilling the staff at these organizations to become community health workers. We bring wraparound medical services, integrated behavioral health and care coordination, and then a technology platform that ties it all together so that you truly have shared care plans across the community for these really hard to reach and high needs individuals, ultimately to improve their well-being and keep them out of the hospital. So that's what we do in a nutshell, but obviously there's a, there's a lot to unpack in there and really it's only in, only possible right now because of the regulatory programs and the regulatory changes that are coming down from the states. Neil, that's so inspiring. I mean, you know, very few are thinking about that end-to-end solution and experience for the, uh, for the user uh, here. So what, what inspired you to start this? What was the spark? Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, what, what, what got you fired a little, up? <laughs> a, little, a, little, a little about me. So I'm a kid from India uh, who thought I'd be a doctor. I made my way to the U.S. I found bits and bytes, fell in love, and, and went down digital health and healthcare technology there. Uh, but what really inspired me all this was my mom. You know, we came from, you know, in India, you see a lot of haves and have nots. And that's where my duty to give back really came from. So there was, you know, from my earliest ages, I was across the streets working with um, uh, what are called jugis in India, which are basically slums. So I had always gravitate towards the nursing station there. We did these as part of school outreach programs, et cetera. And my mom always just pushed me to be there and, and, and you know, form that duty of giving back. I remember earliest, my, my, this is random, but kind of always stuck with me was um, on the way to school, there were these two kids that we met living under a bridge. And every day, my mom would bring four egg sandwiches, one for me, one for her, and two for these children under the bridge. 
And it was, and I didn't, yeah, it didn't, that was just her second nature. She didn't think about it. We, We met them one day and she brought them. And then the sad part, unfortunately, how this goes is one day we went there and this is after three, four years of getting to know them. And the brother walks up and, and, um, we say, Hey, where's your sister? And, um, she'd been hit by a car the day before and life moved on. And, you know, in India, it's one of those areas, it's one of those times where, you know, it's so quick. Like there's so many, there's so much human life, uh, that feels, you know, you, you want to preserve it, but it just can go so fast. And so this is where I, you know, really started to think about how do I want to put myself on a mission towards helping others that don't have nearly as much as I do. I came from, you know, a well-to-do family. And uh, with that started, you know, like I said, digital health, came to the U.S., worked at a company called Forward, which was very high-end concierge care. Um, Unfortunately, we never ended up working on price point there. And so ended up leaving and saying, how could we take all the technology and tooling and bring it to underserved communities? Amazing. So I think we can all agree now that the social determinants of health, um, from your zip code to the food access, um, to social support, all of that really matters. I think we can all agree on that, but we still don't have like payment models to support that. So how have you turned this into a sustainable business? Yes. So, um, this is not a solved problem. I will say, uh, what we have right now is we have uh, regulatory programs and basically a um, surround sound system to these organizations to say, this is what the healthcare system wants to do. So we have infrastructure money coming in from the states, uh, from, from the state Medicaid departments. And so we are launched in California right now. But the challenge is these community-based organizations, these small independent clinics can't actually contract. They can't actually get involved in these big programs because they're pretty complex. These are organizations that are just trying to keep the lights on. Right. A shelter is thinking day to day here. They're not thinking about, okay, how do I build out a mechanism to work with hospital ED systems and then report that back to the hospitals, the, the, the health plan. So what we do is we come in and we help them get involved in these programs that the, the states are setting. So right now we are largely um, uh, going to market through benefits programs that state departments have laid out. New York is just laying out another one. For example, that's starting, I believe, in August now. Uh, and through this, we then create a laboratory to figure out how to get these into more value-based care models. Um, one of the big things here, and I love this quote by, by Jeff Brenner, who was uh, the CEO and founder of Camden Coalition. Um, they had a big study that showed, uh, hey, let me, let me give each high-needs individual, a community health worker, an RN to help support them in a very one-on-one dedicated case management way. And they found that there was actually no results after almost three years. So one, applaud them for putting this out in a very rigorous way. Um, And then more recently, what came out was a synopsis of why. Why did that happen? Because you would have thought if someone can help you get around and coordinate care, then um, you'll address these social health needs, you'll stay healthier, et cetera. Uh, But what they found was you're effectively coordinating care to nowhere um, so there's just not, there's a, there's a fundamental lack of supply there. And the second is if they don't have buy-in on their clinical care. So if you're getting coordinated for your housing and, and food and transportation, all of that, but you don't, you don't, you know, these doctors still only have seven minute visits. They're, they're not giving them a lot of time to get buy-in on their clinical care plan. They weren't bought in. And so yes, they were living, they were living better lives, but they weren't actually staying healthier. 
And so our model of care here is it believes is you, if you don't focus on the entire thing in, in end to end, you're just shifting the bottleneck around. You have to work with the community-based organizations to get access to a very the, the fundamental supply-constrained resource in this beds, meals, social support services. You need to provide uh, access to integrated care delivery resources, so NPs, behavioral health specialists there, and you need to have a funding mechanism that ultimately goes back to the community organization so they can reinvest in themselves. And so that's what we do. Think of it as a accountable care organization for CBOs. So you're not actually delivering care. You're helping coordinate the care between the value-based care providers and all of this, the other social service providers in a community. Well, we do at no. We, so, so we bring our own medical group here, and that's one of the big differentiators oh, okay. in our model. Because, and that goes back to the fact that these clinics just don't have the bandwidth themselves. So we tried, and, and there's been a four years of iteration on this. Um, we tried to partner with federally qualified health centers. They're doing yeah. God's work, but they're also just so overrun. Like it all comes down to access and bandwidth. They just don't have the time to do this work, and especially for you know. One thing I learned at Ford is you really have to be convenient to effectively engage somebody. You really, you know, we're not talking about, hey, I'm going to follow up in a couple of days. We're talking about, I'm going to follow up in 20 minutes. I'm going to follow up, you know, just, just give me your phone number and I'm, and I'm calling you later today. Uh, that's the level of care you need, especially for these individuals that have so much more going on. So that's why we bring mm -hmm. our own medical group. So we can provide really, really convenient touch points for them. Um, and, uh, it's, it's, it's funny. You'd think that forward cares for the highest, you know, like the most concierge individuals. And we're trying to take that same exact concierge experience to really high needs, um, low income individuals. And are you not finding any issues with, um, like mobile usage? Like, are we at a point now where even the lowest income Americans have a phone and can download an app and be engaged? Yeah. I mean, th that's the 80, 20. There's the most individuals have a phone, even elderly individuals are very good at texting. Yes, there are translation issues. We have to have a care team on our side and, and coordination teams on our side that reflect the patients we're serving. Um, uh, but everyone does have a phone and there, there, don't get me wrong, there is a digital divide. It's there for sure. Um, but what we can do, because you can work with these community organizations, one of the things we, we treat them as is distribution hubs. So uh, getting lifeline phones or other connected devices out to these organizations so that they can give them and they can hand them out to the community and hand them out to those that need them most. And unfortunately, you know, the reality is there is there is a, a prioritization. There's a triaging problem that needs to go on here. And so that's more on the, some of the financial work that we do to help get the individuals that need, you know, have the highest need for the bed into that bed. And, you know, some might ask, well, are there, are there equity issues? And I would say that there's equity issues right now. Right now, mm -hmm. it's, it's first come, first serve. And if you have someone with a disability trying to get in line before someone else, it's like that, that therein lies an equity issue. And so we're trying to bring in um, actual dollars and cents to this whole equation of how do you distribute, you know, this fundamental, you know, lack of social support services. Yeah. So Neil, piggybacking off Hallie's question there on, uh, on access, what have you, the, the other element I imagine you'd say, and, and I've seen this with other health tech startups in addition to convenience is trust. And you, you've got a community that is skeptical, that has been mistreated, ignored and, and completely, uh, you know, marginalized. So from your perspective, how do you guys 
with the digital divide, with the challenges you've identified, you've got your own care coordination team internal. I want to get back to that in a minute. Um, you know, how do you build that trust? And I, I assume you agree trust is fundamental here. Oh, I was, I was, if, if you didn't bring this up, this is going to be the next thing I brought up, which is, uh, I call it trust is the currency that we, that everything runs off of. It's, uh, these are organizations, you know, these, these, these shelters, these food pantries that have been around for decades. They've been serving their communities. They're doing God's work. And because we work with them and because we go to them with a very simple pitch of, Hey, let's help you get access to more sustainable funding. So you don't have to constantly have this battle with, you know, sustainable funding being from healthcare. You don't have to have this constant battle on donors and grant funding that is spiky and unsustainable so that they're all in there. And we say, well, there's some amount of change management that come that needs to come along with that. And so we build off of the trust that these organizations already have. In their Love that. And, and, and that's, and that's, that's it. We're not a, um, yeah. that it, it's all about that warm handoff and that warm referral. We're not just calling people, you know, unfortunately, and trust me, you know, we, we, we tried this too. We, were, we tried to do just cold phone calls and there's a lot of these individuals who've just been scammed, totally. right? That's the, that's, that's the, that's the reality. If you're, you know, it's like, well, who the heck is this person who's yeah. talking to me that's saying that they're, you know, a healthcare provider, but you know, what, what the heck, right? And they're offering um, me all these services if, and what, what is this? I mean, what's the catch? Yeah. yeah. What's, what's the, what's yeah, the trick going, Oh, it's for free. Right. Yeah. It's for free. And, and Hey, like, what about, just, just give me your information. Here. Right? Yeah. 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 What's your social um, security number? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like, that's no. Um, and and you know, the numbers show that the free trade is really low as it should be. Um, but if you work with these organizations, and you have, and you have their trust. It's, 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 uh, just like you have, you know, like hip, a chain of trust in HIPAA. Trust, trust is a chain. You know, I, I trust you if you trust you, if you trust you. So we, we build that chain of trust through these community orgs. That's, can you tell a little bit more about how you're building? I mean, if your acquisition model is entirely referral based, like, do you have salespeople on the ground building these relationships with? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So we, um, we do have a network development team. Um, we work with both the independent. So our two, the two folks that we that we work with on the ground are small independent Medicaid clinics. Um, about uh, it's like forty percent of all Medicaid beneficiaries get their care through these really small fragmented clinics. Um, and then we also work with these community based organizations. So it's actually you know once we have it's it's not all inbound referral based, but once we have these partnerships set up, yeah. we can do outreach based on their rosters and who's walking in the door to these community-based organizations. Um, okay. And then, you know, just say, hey, we've, you know, we're partnered with X, Y, and Z. You can go into them. They, you can talk to them about pair team. They know us. We know them. Um, and this is a free benefit. So suddenly you can start to name drop and, you know, you have that, that warm, you know, in some cases that warm handoff or just like they see our names on collateral in, you know, sales material and print material that we give to our community-based organizations. Yeah. Um, so that it, all, all of that happens. And, um, we're, we're just at the point. So we just raised our series a round. We're just at the point of building out a more scalable network development team, have a leader in place. We're announcing actually later this, later this month. Um, but it is a very, you know, feet on the street type yeah. motion. Um, although that is slightly changing. What we're finding is that when you get into a new market, you have to be feet on the street showing up, you know, bring cakes, bring cookies, <laughs> right? Bring, we're actually, we're actually doing, well, we're actually developing what I, what I think is going to be pretty fun is hygiene kits for our community organizations. So like, you know, feet and teeth, so socks and toothbrushes that we can then hand out here. And that's like a great way to just like, you know, what I call give to get, don't expect anything in return. 
Um, that's actually a lot about how we build trust on the on the, the sales side of things. Um, but after we've developed a brand, we can do a lot of this via phone outreach, which is which is very interesting. Yeah, makes your chief marketing officer like that is such a hard job. I mean, this is this is organic user acquisition, right? Member acquisition, patient acquisition. Um, and measuring it is really difficult. Like, how do I know that they came to us because they got the socks, um, and, and then wanted to know learn more and came to our website versus if they heard it from, um, the small independent Medicaid clinic. That's, it's a really interesting job for your chief marketing officer. Tell tell me about your marketing team and how, um, how they're going to go about this. Uh, so we have one person besides me and our sales team that does marketing okay. <laughs> uh, on this, I don't want to say that it's like a, Hey, if we know that we put a dollar in, we get $2 out. Yeah, We're not at no. that level right now, no. but there's just, you know, I think there's just a, a lot of intuitive stuff here. It's, it's like, we don't know how much the hygiene kits We're just starting to think about what that program would look like, but we know it's a good thing to do. We know it's, it's, it's just the right thing to do. And if it's the right thing to do, I have a strong belief that it will pay dividends on the, on the outset. So, you know, one thing from the very beginning that when we set up our initial contracts was no lock-in. This is this 30 days. If you, you know, if you don't want to work with us and it hasn't been working out, please leave. We're not going to do any sort of lock-in, nothing like that. In fact, if we're having a, a pitch and telling you about our services and you want to try to do this yourself, go for it. We will hand you our playbooks. We will, you know, I'll make an introduction to our operations leader and we'll teach you how to do it. Try it yourself because we don't want you, we don't want to feel like you have to work with us. We want you to work with us because we're going to make your life easier and all this. All of these sort of things, Michael, to your point, are all the things that build trust yeah, for sure. when we're going out there. For sure. It's like, it's, it's just, it's just like, it's very gentle and, and we, we kind of lead with, we lead with trust in all these situations. Um, uh, Hallie, I wish we had the, the better, better financial instrumentation for marketing right now, but, where we, we've got so yeah. much low hanging fruit in front of us. Um, we're just, just kind of knocking that off. And yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's like a canvassing business and um, it's just, it's a, it's a totally different approach from the kind of growth marketing tactics that you see with a lot of digital health companies where it's really just about optimizing ads. And um, it's, it's more, as you've said, based on trust um, and brand affinity and yeah. very geographically based. So do you want to talk to us about, you said you mentioned California, you mentioned New York. Tell us about kind of your, uh, the geographies that you're working in, how you've chosen them and how you'll grow from here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the biggest thing is having that warm, that warm introduction there. So the first, I, I, I like to say, and with, with like early stage companies, it's like, you know, to an extent you can't, you can't be picky. You, you know, you have your network, you know, some folks, you just got to go in and like hope for the best. So the first, the first, um, uh, provider that we actually partnered with and all this, you know, had a friend introduced us, went to, you know, I, I visited them two or three times. And then finally they were like, yep, let's, let's work with you. That was in the Inland Empire. That also happened to be a very high needs area of Southern California and Inland Empire now is our largest market. So from that, we did good work. They then told, you know, their other providers and their other community-based organizations about the work we did. And the most interesting on this organic growth side is we're actually having patients refer other patients to us. That's so, perfect. Uh, you have, you have individuals, you know, it's something on the order of like eight to eight to 9% now of our patients come in from other patient referrals because they know people, right? You're, you're in a neighborhood, you, you know, someone, Hey, I, I'm working with this, this, you know, uh, 
Sophia, this great care manager, I think she works at a company called Pair Team. You want me to put you in touch? Uh, that sort of a thing. Um, but yeah, in terms of Hallie, now that now that we're actually looking at more, you know, we've got to a decent amount of scale, and now we're trying to more strategically think about how to expand. One, we're doubling down in California. California has shown just a great commitment to addressing social health needs. California launched uh, one all immigrant workers, regardless of um, if they have a U.S. a U.S. citizenship card get access to healthcare. Now, um, any child under the age of 12 gets free behavioral health access. So, so California is committed and they put the budget behind it to support these initiatives. And so, you know, we want to align ourselves with a Vanguard state like that. Um, the next states are the ones where you look at uh, Medicaid regulation falls under these programs called 1115 waivers. So uh, New York just launched theirs, which looks very similar to California. Uh, that's the next state. That we're going to, and there's a handful of other states that all have similar conversations going. Um, and and one of the things I would I would be remiss to talk about is, is the dollar and cents here. Like there's 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 an ROI. Like this is not just because it's it's you know yes it is good for the world, but to be truly sustainable, we lean into those conversations with the managed care plans and um, and these other provider groups because we want to help them get paid to do this work. And oh, go ahead, just to, Yeah, go ahead. Close it out. Well, just to clarify <laughs> how, you know, we you just said ROI, which got me thinking, like, yeah, how yeah. how exactly are you paid? Are you paid in a value? Are you paid in a capitated model where it's about outcomes? Uh, tell us how, you, how you're paid and then how much you're paid per, per patient that you're managing. Yeah, so it is a, um, it's... We're not we're not at a full risk model, but that is where we're hoping to get to, and that's actually the commitment that these states have made to move social spend underneath MLR. So it's a barred premium there. Uh, right now, we started with case management fees and quality bonuses mm. on them. So anywhere from two fifty PMPM to four hundred PMPM, and really high. So these are very high needs individuals that are experiencing homelessness, but have severe mental illness or substance use, or are just you know frequent utilizers of the emergency department, et cetera. Uh, so we we get these these case rates and then it's our job to go and engage them. So we're not taking risk on a population. It is PEM, PMs. Um, and then so it's, it's uh, the thing that we found is that we're very, very good at engaging this hard to reach population. And I think the last stat we had was 86% of our, of our patients haven't seen a PCP in the last two years but they've obviously been using inpatient care, like hospitals and EDs quite frequently. And then um, of the patients that we have, we've seen about a 37% reduction in ED utilization, uh, 16% reduction in hospital readmissions, um, and then a handful of just of just good metrics, you know, good quality of life metrics, things like suicidal ideations dipped 56%, you know, uh, PHQ-9s have dipped on the order of 60%. A1Cs have dipped on the order of 60%. So wow. we're seeing these just good, you know, because these folks, when you when you get on the phone with them, we're not we're not talking to them first about, hey, do you know your A1Cs high? <laughs> they don't like, <laughs> no one cares, so, right? They, they're like, well, what, what's on your mind? Oh, you're looking for a place, like a place to sleep tonight or a place for, you know, you and your kids to go. Well, we have a network. And that network trusts us because we're helping them become a part of the care delivery system. So let's work. Let's, you know, operationally, that care manager knows the front desk staff at that at that CBO and we call them. And we say, you know, it's not, it's not, it's it's more about that trust than it is that, that you know, we don't need a, I don't need to send a, 
a, a, a very fancy tech platform to do that work. I just need to know that when I call them, they'll pick up that shelter. <laughs> and that's those are the sorts of relationships we build. Uh, that's that's amazing, Neil. And uh, listen, as a kid who grew up in the San Gabriel Valley, I love, uh, which is, as you know, the gate entrance to the Inland Empire. Uh, it's phenomenal to see you guys down there on the ground. So uh, I mentioned this earlier. Would love to chat about the the actual clinical team. Uh, I assume it sounds like you know a differentiated offering that you all bring. In terms of uh, those professionals, are those employees of of Pair Team, or are those contractors that you guys are are creating a network around? Yeah. So I'm um, a little bit of both, but I'll but I'll describe it, which is we have majority are full-time employees with Pair Team. And that was very important to us. We wanted to make sure that we could create a career pathway for care team members to go from uh, what we call lead care managers, which is like frontline workers. They're the ones that are they're, lead care managers are effectively community health workers yep. yeah, and have them have a pathway internally to become managers, to become ops specialists, to become account management. Like we want it, it was very, a culture of internal promotion is very important to us to know that this isn't just where the buck stops and to be integrated with, you know, product, design, data management, all of that. Uh, so we don't have any, you know, we, we like to, we don't have two separate cultures of the care culture and corporate culture. I, I saw what that looks like and that <laughs> wasn't what we wanted to do. Um, so they are full time. However, we also have a set of community health workers from the staff at our community-based organizations. And so this is upskilling. So take someone who is a case manager at a shelter. Um, they're doing this using grant funding right now. And so you can actually give them formal certification to be community health worker training. And they already have all the real world experience right there. They've had the real world experience from just their day to day. Uh, they can get certified and then we lease them underneath our medical group. So in that way, they're still a part of the medical group, but they're not full time on, on our team. They're, they're still a staff at the CBOs. Yeah, and they become these ambassadors, right? And and that whole trust chain is uh, is exponentially amplified. So so yeah. love that, and love that, and and they can bill, and they can be re reimbursed for what they're doing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> they, win, there's win, like win. that whole right. <laughs> yeah. They can they can, yeah they can bill for it, and then suddenly you're giving this. You're like, oh, I'm doing case management. This case management is currently funded on grant funding. You're telling me I can move away from grant funding towards this like sustainable, you know, like very well understood, you know, $25 per billable unit model. Um, it does require education and d don't get me wrong. I don't think we've solved this problem by any means, but, but the appetite for change is there from these community-based organizations. So what that, what that looks like is we have a, um, uh, lead care managers that are the frontline community health workers there. They're backed by, they're in a pod model and they're backed by an RN an LCSW and an NP. And so in that way, we can provide virtual clinical supports uh, to bridge folks to in-person care. So we don't view ourselves as the primary care doctor. We, we try to get them to the primary care doctor or try to get them to a psychiatrist in person because in-person is incredibly, incredibly important. However, reality is everyone's underwater. Next appointment might be in three weeks. What are you going to do in those three weeks? You're going to leave someone high and dry? No, we try to provide at least some amount of support, you know, chronic care management, just a, a behavioral health check-in visit on a weekly basis till they get to that psychiatrist visit. And then we become, you know, the advocate for them to get to get to that face-to-face -face appointment there. So, so this is going to, this care model has been our first version of it. 
we just brought on um, a chief medical officer and his his job is going to be basically expanding on it, particularly to each subpopulation there and building out the partnerships on that. Um, but we do think it's very important that we have that virtual medical group ourselves because otherwise you're like, like I said earlier, you're leaving folks high and dry to be like, well, you need to go to get clinical care, but you can't get it for four weeks. Well, all right, we're going to lose you in that. You know, the trust is lost in all of it. We just sound like everyone else who's made a bunch of promises, but wasn't able to deliver on them. And um, so this is, this is the, the true differentiated model there. And I guess one thing I'd be, I'd want to call out is, is what does this look like in five, 10 years yes. from now, yes. right? What, what, is this, what does this look like? In, in my, my favorite way that I think about this is um, it's all about access. There are 50,000 outpatient centers, out, outpatient clinics in the country. A third of those don't accept Medicaid. Um, you have folks like Walmart, you have folks like CVS who are trying to turn their retail stores into clinics. You know, this is not a, this is not a new, a, a new concept of creating new clinics and repurposing existing retail into clinics. There are one and a half million community-based organizations. If you get one, 2% of those to actually provide care and provide, you know, be a site of care, you're doubling the number of access points in the country especially in rural areas where you just don't have clinics. So that's that's the that's the world that I see. So actually putting the clinicians into the shelters and food banks and whatnot. Is that what I'm hearing? There that is that that is a part of it. There, there, yeah. The economics need to work out and from from a density perspective there. Um but just just being able to provide connected devices, just being able to provide, you know, training to, to the staff at the CBOs yeah. to provide access to virtual care. Um, you can, you know, it's a whole lot better than what the state of the world is now. Sure. And so I don't know if, I don't know if we'll be able to get a clinician in every shelter like that, that, that feels, that feels like it just is a density question there. Um, but we can at least make it a step yeah. function better than where it is right now. Well, you mentioned, you mentioned forward, which launched the health pods. That'll be at Goldman Sachs and McKinsey offices and at the, um, you know, all these places where folks like us can access them. So why not have health kiosks in places where those uh, most vulnerable patients are spending their time? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's, and that's, and, and you know, with, with our model is we just want to make sure the community-based organizations aren't left out of it. It's not someone else coming in and capturing the value. It's upskilling them and enabling them to, to provide these services themselves and giving them the tooling, et cetera, to do it. Uh, so, so I can talk a little bit about the technology platform itself here, uh, because the way, the way, the way I view it is, yeah, yeah, the way, the way I view it is, um, you have a lot of folks building back office support for community-based organizations. Um, we're building effectively the EMR for community-based organizations. So the care management component of all of it. And so, you know, uh, you know, ton of respect for folks like Find Help and Unite Us, which have focused primarily on referrals there. It's one aspect of care management, but then how do you actually get vaccinations, well child visits, coordination with specialists in front of these community-based organizations that have, Michael, to your point, the trust yeah. of these patients, yeah. right? That's the, that's the sort of tools that we're doing and then connect it back to our own medical group um, so that they can, you know, they can coordinate with the NP and the NP can oversee some of those decisions and how that's working. 
Yeah, I love that. So, so when you think about that five to ten year vision, Neil, which is really compelling, uh, and you think about the the current go to market around these benefit programs, you know, funded by the state, you know, is that still going to be the driver in five to ten years, or or is there a different a different sales business model then to achieve that broader vision? Yeah, no, you're gonna we're gonna move into true risk based models. Yeah. That's what's that's what's going to be fully that's that's what's going to scale nationally. There has to you know if you look at a plan like Centene, they're going to go you know they're in it for they have a very strong mission, but they're also looking at the dollars and cents of all of it. So there's really two to two go to market strategies I see with Medicaid managed care plans. One is um, a value based care strategy where you're talking to them about you know risk based contracting, how to reduce qu- costs, increase quality over time. You know the the kind of more more typical. Uh, route that you see digital health companies go down. Yep. And then the other is compliance driven. So managed care plans ultimately need to keep favor with the state departments. And so when the state department says something, the CEO and the executive team behind closed doors is saying, that's my number one priority because they just want in the following four years to remain a managed care plan in that state. And so as these Medicaid waivers fall that are all saying, hey, we have to start addressing social health needs and doing social care care management, um, the, the health plans are having to respond. And so it creates buy decisions and they become shoppers there. So in California, this was kind of core to, to how we got mass distribution. We're now partnered with almost 80% of all the plans in the state of California. And mind you, California has more people than Canada. It has the most, it has, it has what, 20% of all Medicaid lives in the country. And so, um, that's how we just got, you know, over the course, some of these plans were working with, were signing with us in three months because we were just hitting a hair on fire problem from a compliance perspective. There are trade-offs though. One trade-off very clearly is that if you're going in on compliance, you have to follow their rules on some of this. You have to fit into their checkbox for what it means to be compliant, which means a lot more reporting structure and reporting requirements there, um, s- some arbitrary things that you you just have to do. And so if you are going in on more of a risk-based go-to-market strategy, um, you have a lot more flexibility <laughs> yeah. in doing things how you want to do it, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. And so there's some, there's some just checkboxes that we just have to hit and it's, it's uh, you know, cost of doing business um, there. But it gets in the same way of, this is, I go back to, to trust all the time here, in the same way that like you, you, you know, we're a new company. We go up to a managed care plan. We say, Hey, let's get into a risk contract with you. And they go, who, who are you? What have you done? <laughs> right. But if we, but if we go to the managed care plans now and we're saying, well, we've been working with you for two years, we've shown you good results. We've been a good partner to you. Can we start talking about shifting into a risk contract here? Like, let's talk about what that would look like. And it becomes a lot more friendly conversation because we're both on the same side. We're both saying we're, we, you know, it's not us on opposite sides of the table. We're, we're together. We're looking at their population, the population that we're already working with that have trust in our, in our services. And, um, and then it's a, it's a lot more of an open conversation there. So, so we're, we're trending in that way. But what I, what I tell folks is don't shy away from compliance, but also understand what you're getting into. <laughs> well, you didn't go into healthcare because it's easy. So yeah. <laughs> I don't feel too bad oh, yeah. for you. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. I can tell you that even, even some of these compliance things, um, we're going, uh, you know, we, three months into one of our implementations, we get a call. We're going, well, you're not sending us this piece of data. We're like, well, you never told us about it. And they're like, well, the State Department just told us about it last week. And we're like, okay, there we go. <laughs> like, all right, let's, we got we to gotta figure it out now. <laughs> wow. 
Well, Neil, this is really interesting to learn about Pair Team and everything that you're doing for underserved communities. We appreciate you coming on the show and sharing the business with us. Thank you. And that's closing time for today. A huge thanks to our partners at Fenwick for underwriting this show. Recording, editing, and audio mixing by Kyle Moore. Thanks to our guests and to you, our listeners, for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. And check out our website, closingtimepodcast.com, for more exclusive content. Until next time, this is Hallie Teco and Michael Esquivel for Closing Time. Closing Time.